Have you ever noticed how disruptive the gospel is? Just when we think we have things figured out and all of our categories are in place, Jesus starts to mess things up again. Just when we think we have all of this Christ life ideal and principle at work in our own lives and we think we're actually embodying what Jesus talks about, we get a new awakening. I had spent my time in higher education here in beautiful downtown Wilmore, Kentucky. I went across the street for college and here for seminary. And before coming here, I'd never met anybody from another country before. And that in and of itself was eye-opening. In fact, I never had a Southerner as a friend before, and that by itself was a bit of a cultural shift. But I thought I was fairly educated by the time I finished eight years in Wilmore. And then I went to graduate school. I was minding my own business, trying to be faithful there at the University of Michigan. By the way, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Going to Michigan is not exactly a safe thing to do. Another cultural boundary being crossed. And as I was in my program, minding my own business, we had a trip. We were taking from Ann Arbor, Michigan, down to Columbus, Ohio, my hometown, to uh, interview a bunch of higher education officials and politicians about how they dealt with the tensions and policies of the day. This is about 30 years ago, and as we were traveling down, I was in the back of the van, and there were two African-American sisters sitting there with me, and as we were just kind of sharing life, and I was excited to get back to Columbus just for a moment, they asked a very embarrassing question. How did your family deal with race relation kinds of questions? What was it like in your household as you were growing up when it came to African-Americans and other races? I'm sure I hung my head. Because in my household, those were not happy conversations. In my household, prejudice had a capital P on it. And it was called normal. And I found myself once again trying to explain away my past and prove myself as one who would be open and welcoming no matter who it was in front of me. I wish it were just my own experience. I I wish I could say that was just a one-off. Most normal human beings, most normal followers of Christ, that's not an issue at all because we understand what it is to live in the law of Christ. We understand what it is to live without those prejudices, both those in our own experience and those that have been in our experience for years and years and years, even before we were born. Paul had a similar kind of challenge. He was talking to a people around Galatia who had been brought to Christ in the purity and and the power of the gospel. That disruptive word had brought even Gentiles to faith. And as they were coming into that faith, as they were living into that calling, all of a sudden a bunch of crazies show up. These zealots for the law, these Judaizers, who didn't quite get it. I mean, there was even a council in Jerusalem about this whole issue. There was a decision made by all the officials in the church. Here's the deal. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, no matter who you are. But centuries and centuries of prejudice, centuries and centuries of being isolated and set apart as Jews, had unfortunately become more rigid than open to the Spirit's faithfulness. Because in the Judaizers' minds, it was impossible to do anything but the Mosaic Law. 
And while it was a beautiful thing that God was doing with the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Christ, you still had to live by the law. That was a non-negotiable. That had to happen. And as the believers around Galatia started to hear this false teaching, as Paul called it, they were confused. Paul was so bold as to call them foolish for getting distracted by this false teaching. See, the question was, do you have to become a a Jew before you become a Christian? Do these Gentiles have to go by the Mosaic law before they really are authentic believers in Christ? And the battle that went on and the, the, the realities that Paul was trying to address was, listen, this isn't about being Jewish. This is about being in Christ It's a redeeming of the Mosaic law while fulfilling at the same time. This isn't anything but understanding that others may be different, but in Jesus, they are family. And these Judaizers wanted to bring out the checklists. They wanted to say, okay, are you circumcised? Okay, check. Have you followed the dietary laws? Check. Are, Are you not intermarried? Check. Are you following the Levitical worship? Check. Are you abiding by the 613 commandments in the, in the Torah? Check. Check, check, check. You follow those laws, you qualify. If you don't, you don't belong. And all of these identity markers of the Jewish faith that have been in place for centuries now become stumbling blocks to the gospel. Ellen Chari puts it this way, In Judaism, purity is secured by remaining apart. Compliance is clear and concrete. Patently violating the Bible by eliminating circumcision and flagrantly violating both Scripture and rabbinic practice by eliminating dietary taboos, Paul based his guiding principles on the opposite principle from that of the other rabbis. One is not to protect oneself from idolatry, but on the contrary, become an instrument of purifying the world by practicing the way of the life of the cross and the hope of the resurrection that turns the world's values on their head. As Paul said in Galatians 5, true freedom comes not by following the Mosaic law in the way we've always followed it, but true freedom comes by loving your neighbor and walking in the Spirit to live continually in the power of the Spirit. Bearing one another's burdens, as 6.2 says, is indeed to take on the law of Christ. And that is a recalibration that no Mosaic law can accomplish. As Craig Keener says, this is a law of Christ as law of the Spirit. And this is different from what we've known in the past is a kind of kenosis, a kind of self-emptying in the spirit of Christ that is trumping and coming over top of legalistic obedience. Now, as Hansen says, we have this mutual service that becomes the fulfilling of the law of Christ. And even in the holy city of Wilmore, when we take on the law of Christ, there's a kind of mutuality and a kind of breaking of old patterns that has to continue to happen. Now, you might say, not in tiny little Wilmore. We are so secluded. I mean, we were established here as an institution to be 20 miles from sin. We are protected. We are isolated. Well, you may recall somewhere a few months ago around Thanksgiving, I was minding my own business. I got on the IGA to get some things for the Thanksgiving meal. And as I was standing in line, I saw there's a commotion about three customers in front of me. 
And if you were there or you saw it on TV, it looked something like this. Our hidden cameras are rolling at Fitch's IGA in Wilmore, Kentucky. Are these school supplies for your grandkids or your kids? Uh, my class. Your uh, teacher? Yeah. Our teacher is buying her own groceries and stocking up on supplies for the new school year. So you're spending your own money on your students' supplies? Yeah. They buy some supplies, but it's never enough. God bless you. All right, uh, it's thirty-nine fifty-five. When does school start? Fifteen. This woman joins the conversation just in time to hear this. I'm sorry, ma'am, it's declined. Hey, I have some cash. So do I. I'm giving that to her. She does that. You're giving her money to help pay for For her, it's a situation that feels familiar. The eyes of the world are still a Wilmore. Now, my experience, by the way, wasn't that kind. The person who was there behind that actress was angry. And he bolted out of the store and was fuming by his truck when I came out. Thankfully, the producers of the show were kind to us. They understand that our heart is towards the law of Christ, even though sometimes we carry prejudices and biases that might have generational kinds of roots. And you might think, not in Wilmore, not here in Kentucky. One of our heroes of the faith here in Wilmore is E. Stanley Jones. We've named a school after him, by the way. And as you hear some of his story through the eyes of Mark Schwartz, one of the historians across the street, I was reminded again that even in Wilmore, there are systemic kinds of roots that sometimes bias us in the wrong direction. One of the reasons why we chose East Andy Jones as the name of the school, and I happened to be a student here when that naming happened, was because of his ability when he was a missionary in India to take the gospel and to put it in contextual terms. He was very clear that if the gospel was to be received by the people of India, it had to be in Indian kinds of language and Indian kinds of forms. Now, it was during the time of colonialization and India's fight for independence during the days of Gandhi. And so there were all kinds of tensions that went along with that. Unfortunately, as the, the years went on, as you go to the, towards the middle of the, of the middle 20th century, right after World War II, all of the racial tension here in the United States kept showing up in the news in India. And after a while, Jones would say to us here in the U.S., look, you're embarrassing me. I can't make the gospel clear when these who are trying to get at the pure gospel see us in America still fighting over old categories. In 1925, he wrote that book, Christ of the Indian Road, trying to talk in those terms of how do we decolonize the gospel? How do we contextualize that truth? In 1942, when he was here, by the way, he was not only an alum of the college of the university, he was also on their board of trustees. And in 1942, they declared the East Annie Jones Day. And in gratitude for that honor, here's how he was prophetically speaking to them. 
as he preached on that day a series of sermons, they, Swartz says, focused on global Christianity, social justice, personal spirituality, racial integration, end quote. May I tell you what I should like to see added to this interpretation of Christ of the Asbury Road, Jones asked. You have limited to a very definitely personal application. It lacks a great social application. I know some people have nervous chills going up and down their backs when I talk like that. I'm going to talk about it anyhow. I am not interested in an individual gospel or a social gospel. An individual gospel without a social gospel is a soul without a body. A social gospel without an individual gospel is a body without a soul. One is a ghost and the other a corpse. I don't want any of them. I want both. And as Jones would preach to this conservative college and be engaged in the civil rights movement across the United States, he was a voice not only for the gospel without any kinds of barriers, but also for the life transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And that's a combination not common then or now. You would think that in 1942 that kind of bold prophetic word had been enough. But he came back for more in 1958. He was there to preach a series of revival meetings. And as he was preaching, the the tensions around the the civil rights movement were very, very high. Martin Luther King had had all kinds of, of pressure and tension. He was soon to be attacked for his stance upon equal housing in Chicago. He had been jailed. And as this era was so vibrant with all kinds of racial tension, in that revival meeting, Jones called the student body to a new kind of standard. Not the one so common across the United States in those days, but in fact, with the love of God, we need something to break down all of our prejudices and all of our fears and give ourselves to Jesus Christ. And Jones gave a call to commitment that included conversion, but also social change. And over 500 people came to the altar. He thought at that moment, he had finally convinced the people of Wilmore, Kentucky, particularly the college, that that kind of civil rights question ought to be settled in Christ Jesus. There ought not to be segregation. There ought to be integration. Well, initially, the college wouldn't hear of it. By the way, I'm not sure we did much better here at the seminary. I'm just happy to know this story and not our story as well. Because of that, he resigned for the Board of Trustees and forced their hand. And the pressure was so strong from the alumni upon that single act of righteousness and justice that they changed their policies. Within a matter of a few years, they practiced integration in a whole new way. Now, I wish I could say that it all ended in 1958. It'd be a beautiful thing if we had 60 years now of having learned our lessons and now living in a way that honors Christ in the law of Christ, the law of the Spirit, the law of grace. But over and over again, we keep running into the same selves that have been shaped by centuries. About two weeks ago, we were in class together and uh, had a few folks who come from different racial backgrounds than the majority in the class. And it was always fascinating to hear the stories, always fascinating to hear the kinds of background and struggles. And 
I was reminded again in that class, as I've heard in several classes, we don't understand. We who happen to be from majority population, whether it's here or in another country that's a majority population, we just don't understand. Yvonne and I were at a um, memorial service on Saturday, and one of the prophetic laypersons who was part of that service, pastor and missionary, happened to be married from somebody from Northeast India. And he made a profound statement over dinner. I never understood prejudice until I married cross-racially. Because the kinds of pressures and looks and stigmas that I picked up and my wife has picked up as one who was born in another country now living in the U.S. And even when we lived in France and in Germany, it was the same. We struggle with the prejudices and bigotry that are all around us. Now, the good news is this. Paul reminds the Galatians and reminds us that there is a pathway. There is a law of Christ that does turn things around. And our calling is towards restoration, he says in 6.1. Our calling is to catechesis, he says in 6.6. 6. Our calling is to sowing good, he says in 6.8. There is a way by which we carry one another's burdens in ways we may not have thought of before. There are ways through building strong relational ties and getting into the worlds of those who are not like us that we start to carry their burdens with them. There are ways as we do so that we then find ourselves embodying the law of Christ in unimaginable, maybe even unthinkable patterns that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would have never entered our minds. One of the comedies of never having lived more than five hours from where I was born is that I was fairly provincial, still am. I mean, I have a hard time eating vegetables, let alone eating foreign foods, as I used to call it. But one of the comedies that, uh, that comes with being part of this kind of community is that I have the privilege of traveling to different places around the world. And I'm always the guest. I'm always honored. I always get the safe stuff. It's never too crazy. But I'm reminded again and again as I go, God's grace is much larger than my narrow world. And God's invitation is much richer than the thin taste of reality that I have here in the United States. And that God calls each of us to this pathway, this law of Christ, which is always towards restoration, is always towards catechesis, is always towards sowing good, and that always comes relationally, no matter what. Ben Witherington reminds us that's not just simply in relational terms. Sometimes that's in costly terms. Sometimes that means forking out cash. Sometimes that means being inconvenienced in our schedules. Sometimes that means eating things we don't like. Sometimes that means facing the trials and the stresses and the pressures that a minority person might experience here. And by, by the way, for those of you who are of my background and my racial profile, change is coming whether we're ready for it or not. Give it about 10 years. And then how shall we live? Ellen Cherry reminds us this is what Paul is talking about. 
Practicing the law of Christ is constantly demanding and challenging one's personal strengths and skills. It means becoming so trustworthy that oath-taking is unnecessary, so ironic that divisions and quarrels are non-existent, and lawsuits obsolete, so pure in body that one's sexual behavior is beyond reproach, so concerned for others that one would eat what others prefer, and so dedicated to the common good that self-advancement constitutes no lure. Paul demands a highly self-disciplined personality that never rests from caring for others and the common good by means of self-mastery. Rather than protecting oneself from spiritual danger, one is to embrace it, including situations that tempt one's insecurities and the persons who call forth our worst self. That's the law of Christ. Every community of any diversity at all, it's this mashup, right? It's this mix of and fusion of disparate elements of all kinds of personalities, of all kinds of backgrounds, of all kinds of biases. That's who we are. And for the Christian community, for a community founded on the law of Christ, for a community that's committed to spirit-powered kenosis, holy love, our only hope of pressing back against the seen and unseen cultural evils is this work of the Spirit called the law of Christ. And as we come to this time of Eucharist, we once again engage. We once again allow that same Spirit of Christ, the crucified and resurrected one, to call us into a world desperate for the hope of a disruptive gospel. No matter how inconvenient, no matter how costly, a willingness to bear one another's burdens not just in the fellowship, but even in the world around us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that there are boundaries and strictures on our own lives that have been there for generations, and we need your help to know how to break free. We confess that our own experience and our own lives sometimes bias us against your people and those you love. By the power of the Spirit, speak to us again, even in these moments of Eucharist, so that we might break free once more and know the law of Christ alive in us. In the name of Jesus, and amen.